Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what's currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Jordan McPherson, and I'm an oncology clinical pharmacist at Huntsman Cancer Institute, part of the University of Utah Health in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, I'll be having a discussion with Dr. Tanya Smith, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist in internal medicine at Emory University Hospital Midtown in Atlanta, Georgia. We're faculty for an educational initiative titled Predicting the Unpredictable, Navigating the Ever-Changing Landscape of Immunotherapy and Immune-Related Adverse Event Management. This activity is supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Merck. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not approved for continuing education credit. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started. How are you, Tanya? Doing well, Jordan. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm really excited about our discussion today. You know, we had a discussion at mid-year about several new topics in the realm of immune checkpoint inhibitors in Vegas, and we we focused on several things. And I, I think, you know, most of them were related to how, you know, one might optimize immunotherapy and, and kind of some angles that maybe many haven't heard about recently, um, things that we don't really normally think about with immunotherapy. And one that really stimulated some interesting questions from the audience was with regard to drug interactions. And so today I was hoping that, you know, for all the listeners, we could really just delve back into that discussion and and focus a little bit more in depth on drug interactions with immunotherapy. Yeah, I think one of the key things that we focused on at mid-year was the fact that the traditional concept of drug interactions may not necessarily capture what we're concerned about with immunotherapy. So typically with drug interactions, we think about various pharmacokinetic aspects of drug metabolism and some other pharmacodynamic aspects. But with immune checkpoint inhibition, what we're mainly worried about is which drugs get in the way of the immune response. So it's not a traditional drug interaction in that sense. Right. And it's hard to kind of switch gears on that because I think there's so many of us that get educated and, you know, we're we're schooled on drug interactions being something that cytochrome P450, it's, that's all the drug interactions. And and I think it kind of takes this frame shift perspective that you're, you're thinking, okay, it, you know, even more so pharmacodynamically, are drugs, things that we're using getting in the way of, of our cancer therapies working correctly? And so, we did also highlight the fact that some of the data we went over at mid-year is not exactly what you would describe as uh, the best quality or, or perfect. You know, I, I think there's this criticism from a lot of us, and I think, you know, especially pharmacists in, in particular are the best critics of studies. And we think that if something's not an RCT, then the validity is is not high at all. But, you know, I think one of the th- things that we all have to realize is that a lot of the decisions that we make every day on interactions are not based on RCTs. And so, Tanya, that data, even with it being not the highest quality, I was just wondering if you could go over some of the key things that we presented on at mid-year and maybe focusing on like three highlights that are the main things that our listeners could focus on before we get into the other things. Sure. I'll start with one that I think is really interesting because it's a medication that's so commonly used. And in fact, I would guarantee that almost 100% of individuals who listen to this podcast have this medication in their cabinet at home. 
And that is acetaminophen. So we talked at mid-year about acetaminophen and how it interacts with immunotherapy. So this was initially inspired by some vaccination data in children that showed that acetaminophen use blunts immune response to vaccines. So some newer data specifically with immunotherapy found not only a preclinical basis for how acetaminophen suppresses T-cell activation, but also a clinical link to worsen outcomes from immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So worsened overall survival, worsened progression or shorter progression-free survival. And cannabis is a, a similar story. I'll talk about that in just a second, but I guess I just want to drive home the point that acetaminophen can suppress the immune system and has been associated with worse outcomes from immunotherapy. So talking a little bit about cannabis, which can be a little bit more challenging just because the type of product varies, the formulations vary, individuals use it in a, a lot of different ways. But there are recent data showing worsened survival in patients using cannabis while on immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So similar to Tylenol, cannabis also can suppress the immune system. So that would be, I guess it's really two points in one, but the first take-home point would be that acetaminophen and cannabis can affect the immune system and really should not be used in patients receiving immunotherapy. Yeah, you know, these results have been really kind of earth-shattering in my realm. And at least uh, from my perspective, I think that there have been some differing opinions. We're going to get into a little bit of that in a bit. But I look at that, especially the acetaminophen article that was published in this, you know, really high impact factor journal, the Annals of Oncology. And, you know, if you really delve into that beyond just the abstract, which I think a lot of people have this, there's this paywall. It's you can't get to the article except through like, for me, it was a drug information request, right? You had to get to, to get that PDF. There's a lot of people that would look at that abstract and think, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. But if you actually delve into the article, it, it feels like four studies in one because they had not only these pre-therapy levels of acetaminophen proving that these people were on Tylenol and then showed going forward that they have reduced survival, but they also went back and looked preclinically, you know, showing that there's this interaction and increasing Treg, you know, expression. And so they've got, you know, not only this test tube basis, but also this clinical link. And so I, I wonder really like how could we could do better than that. And the cannabis data has been a little bit better even though it's not, I don't think it's strong data, it feels like it's been more easily accepted. So from that angle, I think that those two, probably the strongest data that you went over at mid-year, you did go over two other drug classes as well, proton pump inhibitors and opioids. And I thought when listening to you is interesting and, and the data is fascinating. It makes sense for at least from the PPI side that the pH and the gut could mess with the microbiome and things like that. But it did seem like the kind of take home from those two is that those proton pump inhibitors and specifically and opioids have been linked to reduced efficacy, but their data is less convincing. Is that kind of the bottom line from, from what you presented on those two, you think? Yeah, that's a good one sentence summary. And I think highlights again, that these things that are so commonly used in patients with cancer, or, you know, in a lot of other patients too. Think about all the patients if you spend time on a hospital ward, how many patients have a proton pump inhibitor on their MAR. Things that we often think of as benign, but 
they can impact the efficacy of immunotherapy as well. Uh, we do need more robust data to show that, but uh, it's an interesting association that we've seen in some early literature. And then with opioids, you know, what's tricky about that is a lot of the information about opioids with immunotherapy is typically in patients with metastatic cancers who often are on higher doses of opioids as they near the end of their disease process, uh, near the end of life. And so it's hard to say, do the opioids actually cause worsen overall survival in someone on immunotherapy? Or is this just a correlation because of these individuals being patients who are on more opioids because of their disease. So maybe more to come in the future. And then the last point, I guess, that would be good to highlight from our talk at mid-year and that you're going to talk more about today, and I can't wait to hear more about, is that drug information resources have not kept up with these new drug-drug interactions with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So since mid-year, we did a little digging between the two of us of what commonly used drug resources flag with regard to immunotherapy drug-drug interactions. So can you give a rundown to the audience of how interaction reporting compared with different immune checkpoint inhibitors? Yeah, you know, I, it's so fascinating, you know, looking at these different resources. And, you know, we did a poll everywhere at mid-year, Tanya, and we were able to see what the most commonly used resources were in this cloud, word cloud. And I think, you know, I know that the most common one that we use probably and others that seemed bubbled to the top was LexiComp. And so, you know, absolutely, I knew we'd, we need to look at LexiComp for these interactions. But there were others that also came up. And some of them that were listed were micromedics, very commonly used, clinical pharmacology. There were several that mentioned natural medicines. And so, you know, I thought, you know, let's look at kind of what the reporting shows on this and let's see if we can kind of take a deep dive into that and see where the current, it currently stands because, you know, have these, these references caught up or not is a really important question because there are so many pharmacists that are, are basing their current everyday interaction decisions on these interaction checkers. They're not up to date on the data as, as well as what we're talking about right now. So. You know, when you look at these four, so like really just focusing on the most common ones, which is would be Lexicomp, Micromedics, Clinical Pharmacology, and Natural Medicines, I think something that's really kind of apparent to me is that Lexicomp is probably the one that's kept best pace with everything. It's not perfect. It does, I think, to its credit... The first thing I think of with immunotherapy is that use of corticosteroids before starting has been well established as an interaction for quite some time. And Lexi does a really good job of highlighting the fact that that's a problematic thing before starting therapy, but after starting therapy is still fine for treatment of immune-related adverse events and IRAEs, which we went over in our talk as well. And so that's really great. They highlighted it as a risk level D. And so, and, and that's considered therapy modification, which I think is, is very valid, right? On the other side of what kind of things we highlighted in our talk, if you type in acetaminophen and you type in an immune checkpoint inhibitor, it flags it as an interaction and it gives a risk level of C. I think this is interesting. It's something you'll, I think, comment on a little bit, but the risk level C, at least for Lexicomp, is something that they deem as monitor therapy, which is kind of interesting. It also is fascinating to me that it flags PPI, so proton pump inhibitors and antibiotics, which is not something we focused on this year. I think we talked about it a little bit last year, but it flagged those two things at the same level as acetaminophen. So I thought that was 
interesting. I also thought it was interesting that cannabis in Lexicomp, so marijuana or cannabis, is searchable. So it's something that you can check interactions against, but did not flag anything with immunotherapy or immune checkpoint inhibitors at all. And so that interaction is, is not flagged. In terms of the other three, there's kind of like this consistently poor representation across the three others on really anything of value. Micromedics did not list any interactions at all, which I thought was surprising because it doesn't even list an interaction with corticosteroids. And oddly does list an interaction with the JAK inhibitor tofacitinib. And this is really bizarre. Kind of, I, I feel like it's almost even an error because it flags tofacitinib, which immunosuppresses against other agents that are potent immunosuppressants, which, as we all know, immune checkpoint inhibitors overactivate the immune system, right? So it's not, that doesn't seem like an accurate one at all. Also, oddly, Micromedics doesn't have the ability to search for cannabis. It's only allowed for searching a seed oil product, which is like cannabis sativa seed oil, but it did not allow for just adding cannabis itself. With clinical pharmacology, there was no ability at all to search for cannabis, and it did flag like four odd products, or rather three, I think. it was One was palifermin, one was penicillamine, and one was the PPD test, just for tuberculin testing. And and I'm not sure how valid any of those are, to be honest. So in essence, it looks as if, you know, both micromedics and clinical pharmacology really don't flag any interactions with immune checkpoint inhibitors that are based on actual data in that realm. So I thought that was really fascinating. Kind of on the flip side with natural medicines, like, you know, I think a lot of pharmacists use that database on a day-to-day basis to make decisions on natural products. And so that was the main one I wanted to focus on with cannabis when we were looking at this stuff. And their uh, monographs are quite detailed. And I find that they go into some obscure data and some, you know, really weird preclinical things sometimes to get at some of the effects some of these um, supplements have. And I found it really interesting that there was no reference at all on any of the studies that had anything to do with immune checkpoint inhibition and cannabis. And even though there were like discussion in the monograph about immunologic effects of cannabis, there wasn't any mention of interactions. There was no flagging in their interaction checker. There wasn't even mention of that survival link, which I thought was interesting because some of the data with cannabis has been out for several years now. And so out of the references we've looked at, kind of the down and dirty, I think is that Lexicomp definitely is ahead of the pack in terms of identifying potential interactions right now with immune checkpoint inhibitors, while the rest of them are really behind. So Tanya, hearing all that, and how do we interpret this? Like, What's your perspective on Lexicom's drug interaction reporting and how maybe the risk levels we went over, kind of going back to reminding the listeners that they flag all these interactions as risk level C, as monitor therapy, how do you think that might be perceived by by the general pharmacist? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think about my my day to day. So this morning I went on rounds and we have a very busy service right now. And a drug interaction question comes up on rounds. I look really quickly on Lexicomp that I always have open in a tab and I see C and I say, okay, it's, you know, it's okay. And I move on for the purposes of time. And I hate admitting that, but here I am. And I think everybody listening would be lying if you said you'd never done that before. But when we're in a time crunch, a lot of times that's what we do. Okay, no immediate threat of harm, move on and I'll come back and look more in depth later. 
In fact, what we should be doing though, and I think what our research has taught me is that I can't go by the letters. So the fact that it only flags acetaminophen and immunotherapy, which in my mind, based on this data, is an absolute no-no, that means that I need to be clicking into each of these interactions and seeing what the nature of the interaction is. You know, is this a theoretical interaction or is this actually studied? What are the references that are shown here? And kind of make my own assessment about the risk category. So I, you know, may think that this is actually an X. So it doesn't mean that I can't trust Flexicomp. It's a great resource. And it, I think it, it does do a good job of keeping up with things in real time. But it's up to me to use my clinical judgment and my training to really evaluate those interactions critically. So I can't just see this, see the C. That means monitor therapy. Um, and I'll I actually have this information pulled that you shared with me that a C from Lexicom from the risk categories, and you can find this online um, if you're curious what the different categories mean. Data demonstrate that the specified agents may interact with each other in a clinically significant manner. The benefits of concomitant use usually outweigh the risk. So that doesn't say yes or no, but it, it tells me that there's maybe some more thought that should be given to it. Right. You know, it's not something that when you look at that and you think monitor therapy, I think there's a lot of people that would be like, oh, okay, you know, this, that, that I think for the majority of SIP based interactions would make sense, right? You, you, I think that we're kind of hitting a wall here where our, our drug interaction tools have been designed in such a manner that they very well address traditional type of drug interactions, but maybe the categories or recommendations that they make for these non traditional type interactions with cancer therapies, specifically with immunotherapy, are not as well fitted to what needs to be communicated. Because I think when you're dealing with something where fundamentally you're potentially opposing the key mechanism of immunotherapy, you're talking like a lot higher stakes at hand with this. And so, you know, I do feel like what you referred to has a lot to do with, you know, this alert fatigue that we have, you know, where we are inundated with all of these things, you know, alert pop pop, you know, pop ups all the time when we're verifying orders or when we're entering things into the EHR and and we have to kind of just get the elephant in the room out and say, yeah, there's a lot of different alerts that we have to deal with and how to how to sort through those. And that's that's a tough thing. I think it does kind of highlight the cracks and imperfections in these systems that could be maybe better refined to capture what these inter modern day kind of interactions might entail. And so, Tanya, I think, you know, this kind of leads into a little bit of a discussion on how we, you know, all this alert fatigue kind of causes us, I think, over time a little bit to change. Like we become different, you know, when we're out of pharmacy school everything matters right and we we have all these alerts and we're paying close attention to all of them over time we become desensitized to the same kind of information and we think we kind of understand how things are going and we have these biases that kind of get ingrained into our psyche you know as pharmacists as professionals and so what do you think about how those become kind of part of us when we have when we have these biases we bring in like if i because I, I've just found that these studies on interactions have been received so differently from different individuals. And I feel like that's different maybe than just alert fatigue, but this we bring in this bias and, and these different types of biases. What, what do you think about that? 
I think one thing, just to highlight your comment, even about the electronic medical record, um, thinking about my institution that recently transitioned to Epic, and when you change computer systems, things don't, you know, at a go live, not everything is going to be perfect, and there's usually an optimization phase, and so at this point, we're probably not seeing all the drug interactions that exist, and so I have to be really careful about the alerts that I get, still experience alert fatigue because it still will show some things like, you know, are you sure you want to give a diuretic with this patient and chronic with chronic kidney disease? Um, things that, you know, yes, I know this is okay, but still have to be optimized. I think sometimes those may affect our biases as well and may not always help us when things um, still have some optimization to them. I think too about when I did work um, more directly in oncology and how uh, a lot of a lot of folks that I worked with, a lot of specialists, myself included, would be biased against interactions with immunotherapy. You know, often we think, oh, this is benign because it doesn't interact by those traditional mechanisms like the CYP450 interactions that we think of. And so we often, you know, may think of them as having no interactions at all. So sometimes those biases can work uh, work against us. And that's one example of that. Have any of the providers that you work with in your clinics or other colleagues shown resistance to some of those as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I think when this data, especially with the acetaminophen first came out, I, I you know, I was sharing it around um, the clinics and it's just been funny to see the reactions because I feel like people view acetaminophen as this like golden child. Like, you, you know, how <laughs> dare you step on my child? You know, my non-opioid I mean, pain medication. Yeah, like, how dare. dare you? Like, step off. There's no consideration of, hey, maybe I should consider this and really um, take the time to listen and kind of take in this data. I think we have this tendency when we have these assumptions to disregard things that don't fit into the box we create. And especially with acetaminophen, I mean, hey, that's our go-to drug for pregnancy breastfeeding. If it's good for them, it's good for everyone, good for right? Everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I think we we have to kind of get ourselves in the mode of always being willing to reevaluate our assumptions. There's never something where you can just say, hey, this discussion is sealed. The data is, you know, maybe the data is, you think the data is not strong enough. Well, you're making that assumption. You know, if there's a question now that's posed because of this preclinical basis and this early clinical information on acetaminophen interaction, and you just make this blanket assumption that it's not worth the, my time, then you've made that decision for that patient when maybe that should be more the the patient's call, right? And so I kind of, I know we're limited on time. And so wrapping things up, I, I wonder if we could kind of discuss how to make this practical. Like what's our perspective? What's your perspective, Tanya, on how these kind of data should be presented to patients and what are key ways in which that would enable a patient to potentially keep their autonomy? I, I think that that's something we need to always be thinking of. Like, are we making decisions for the patient or are we allowing them to be informed? Yeah, I think to, to answer the first part of that, I think that we can't let our drug interaction checkers be our decision makers as clinicians that can't a drug interaction checker can't be the end-all, be-all. So I think understanding the mechanism of the drug is important, and we can even come up with potential drug interactions on our own that way just by understanding very generally how 
a medication works. I think when it comes to patients, especially in an age of shared decision-making, it's if, if we're especially having a hard time making a decision or if a patient has a really strong feeling about using a medication or trying something, maybe they really want to use acetaminophen and avoid opioids at all costs, then we share the information with them and we let them make a decision. I do think that especially in a patient with cancer, providing autonomy and, and sharing that decision-making is really important because there are a lot of things that are decided for them, whether we realize it or they realize it or not. And I think that that's one way that we could involve patients in their care is presenting them with information and letting them, you know, getting their opinion, sharing with them our opinion, but recognizing at the end of the day what they want and what they may think is best for them may not be what we think is best for them. Absolutely. I, I think sometimes it's hard because we have these I mean, we, whether we like it or not, we bring in these conclusions to our, you know, ourselves to the conversation of what we think is worth talking about, what we think is not worth talking about. And so, you know, I imagine there's probably somebody listening to us and just like shaking their head and being like, those suckers, they fell for the acetaminophen <laughs> data, they fell for the cannabis data, they think it's the best in the world, where that's not what I think. I think that it's just simply the fact that you have to take all data into account and make decisions with what we've got. And so, you know, we're do, we do the best we can, but I think we need to leave the ball in patient's court, you know, let them make the call. Our job is more to interpret that and help them to kind of sort through. And, and as you put it in the, the talk, weed through the data and the <laughs> discussing cannabis. So, you know, we are out of time. I'd like to thank Tanya. Thank you so much for the, your discussion uh, today. And I hope uh, our listeners were able to glean something to take home to your site of practice. And don't forget to check out our mid-year and Ask the Experts webinars. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.